Jesus also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up. Go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf. Slaughter it. Let's celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, his father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God's mercy is offensive to good people. God's mercy is offensive to self-righteous people. And as we turn our attention to Jonah chapter 4, we'll find that God's mercy is offensive to Jonah the prophet. Sure, he enjoys God's mercy when it's being poured out on him, but God's mercy is not for Israel's enemies in Jonah's estimation. It's only really for good people. It's the main idea of our text this morning that God's mercy is offensive to good people. 
we'll see that Jonah, just like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, is offended by God's mercy. I'm going to exhort you this morning to have mercy and to love mercy. And we'll work through the text in two parts. First three verses, we'll consider what Jonah's heart is like. And in the last six verses, we'll consider what God's heart is like. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, help me to preach a better sermon than I've prepared. Help us to hear your words. Give us the expectation that you would meet us here and now. Pour out your Spirit onto us that we might turn from our sins and believe. Father, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. We continually recognize our need for you. And we need the Lord Jesus more now than we ever have. Give us Jesus this morning. Give us grace this morning. Give us your mercy this morning. We come here as those who are weary and weak and need the strength that only Christ can offer. We come as those who are longing for the rest that only He can give. Give it to us this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Jonah is white hot angry. But he actually provides a, a good example on this front end. With his anger, he goes to God in prayer. He prays angry. And just a quick word of application uh, pray angry. I think sometimes we have this idea that if we're really mad or upset with God about a situation that we should just kind of uh, tuck that away and hide it under the covers of our hearts. But the truth is, is that God already knows. And the best thing for you to do is to get in conversation with him. Because our Father loves his children. And our Father will listen to his children vent. And he'll correct us ever so gently. He is a loving God. But why is Jonah angry? Well, you don't have to look any further than verse 10 of chapter 3. Jonah has just finished preaching to the evil Ninevites. The Ninevites have repented. And in verse 10, we read that God saw their actions how they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah preaches what's maybe the greatest sermon of all time, just five words in Hebrew, and the whole city of Nineveh repents. Why is he angry? I mean, he should be rejoicing, 
about what God has done, delighting in the repentance and the salvation of an evil people, of an entire city. I mean, at the least, he should be kind of pumped like, maybe I'm the greatest preacher of all time. But instead, he's angry. Why? Well, he tells us here in the second part of verse 2, and it's a big reveal of the whole book. Because remember, we're not ever given an explicit answer to the question of why Jonah fled from Nineveh initially at the beginning of the book. And the author has employed this technique of information gapping. He's made us wonder about it, the whole story. And now he's going to reveal it to us. Why did Jonah run? Jonah says to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought would happen while I was still in my own country? I told you so. That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah fled initially because of a twofold fear. Part one of that fear was just of the cruelty of the Assyrians. They were notoriously wicked and evil. They came up with ways of torturing people. I shared with you how one of their leaders took down a rebellious city and afterward skinned the people that were leading the rebellion and hung their skins around the city as a signal and a warning to anybody that would dare oppose him. I mean, these are some bad dudes and bad gals. They're one of Israel's enemies, even though Israel is prospering at the time. Certainly unworthy of grace in Jonah's estimation. Which leads us to the second part of his fear. He is afraid that God will have mercy on Nineveh. He is afraid that these wicked Assyrians will get away unpunished and unscathed. And now his nightmare is a reality. They believed what he preached, and God relented from the disaster he said he would bring. It's a nightmare. He told God this would happen. Notice he says something very true about God, and it probably sounds familiar to you because he's quoting from Exodus chapter 34. And this is what he says. I knew this would happen in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And then the next line is, And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What's happening here is that Jonah has great theology, but his biography is a little messed up. Jonah is leveraging a charge of injustice against God. You see, what he did was he took that portion of Scripture from Exodus chapter 34 and he left off a part of it intentionally. I'm going to read it to you from Exodus 34 and we'll see if you can hear what Jonah leaves out. Moses is coming, or Moses is coming. God is coming down in a cloud to Moses. Don't want to get those two mixed up. And he's going to reveal himself to Moses. And in verse 6, we read, The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord 
is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And here's the part that he leaves off. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see what Jonah's doing? This is a God, from Jonah's perspective, that leaves the guilty unpunished. If anybody were ever guilty of doing evil, it's these Assyrians living in Nineveh. How can a good God not pour out his contempt on them? Who cares if they've repented? They've done real evil. How can God not deal with that? And Jonah is saying, if you can't deal with their sin properly, I don't want to live in a world like that. You are unjust to allow them to get away with their sins. I knew you were a softy. A tender-hearted God rather than a God of wrath. You're no God of justice. It's better for me to die than to live. Well, I think the first thing's first. We have to ask the question, is Jonah right? Is Jonah right? How, how can God forgive and not punish these people in Nineveh who have done such great evil? Let's go a step further. How can God have mercy on Jonah? Or maybe more poignant, more salient, how can God have mercy on you and on me? It's kind of a great mystery throughout the Old Testament. How is God able to forgive sins? Yes, we're sacrificing animals, but how can the blood of a lamb, how can the blood of less valuable animals pay for the sins of people? And finally, in the New Testament, we are given an answer in the cross of Christ. It's because at the cross of Christ, God's justice and God's mercy, they meet and they kiss. They're on grand display. And I love the way that Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26 explains this to us. I've told you many times, I think it's perhaps the most important passage in all of Scripture. This is what it says. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his restraint, passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is it that God can have mercy on anyone? And at the same time, not let the guilty go unpunished. But well, here it is on the cross. 
God lays the iniquity of us all onto the shoulders of Christ and He punishes our sin there. The punishment that brings us peace is laid upon Jesus. God is just. He punishes sin. And the sin of everyone who repents and turns to God and says, you are my king, my life is yours, they will receive forgiveness of their sins. But to those who reject Christ, well, their sin will be dealt with upon Jesus' return to make all things new. You see, friends, all sin has been or will be dealt with. The guilty will not go unpunished. Your sin has either been punished in Christ or it will be punished when Christ returns. Jesus came the first time to bear God's judgment against sin for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. And He's coming the second time to bring judgment against everyone who continues in rebellion against His rule and reign. Jonah's wrong. God is just. And God is merciful. But to be honest with you, I don't think that Jonah's really concerned with the justice of God. I think what's truer here of Jonah is that he hates the Assyrians. You see, God's grace is good for him, but it's not good for any, anyone else that's outside of Israel. Let me tell you, what I mean. One would think that once the Assyrians turned from all the evil they were doing, that Jonah would be okay with them receiving forgiveness. Because he, like them, is a sinner. It's not morally perfect. He turns from his sin and asks God for mercy and forgiveness, and that's good. But what happens here, it seems, is that Jonah's not offended by their moral depravity, but by their nationality. He's not worried about the moral depravity of Nineveh, but their nationality. You see, Jonah has an idol. He loves Israel. He loves Israel more than God. He loves Israel so much so that when God tells him to go to one of Israel's enemies and preach the gospel, to preach God's word, he runs away. He loves Israel so much that when God forgives one of Israel's enemies, he says he would rather die than live in a world like this. Jonah, in his patriotism, has become prejudice. Jonah is a racist. Doesn't want God's offer of salvation offered to anyone who is different from him. This is relevant to us. Racism is still a problem within the world and within the church, and it's one that we must continually address. The church must be a counterculture to the rest of the culture. It must be a place where truly Jew and Gentile, black and white, there's another one, Democrat and Republican, come together and live together as the body of Christ. A place where people who are different come together under the banner of the cross. 
a true unity in diversity because all of us have primary allegiance to Jesus. All of us are finding our identity in Jesus. The church must be a place where reconciliation happens because Jesus died to end racism and to save racists. His heart, his love is wide and it's deep. And our hearts need to be shaped after his. We need to love more widely and more deeply like Jesus does. No one should ever come into our church and be disfavored because of the color of their skin, their cultural background, or their socioeconomic status. It should be a place where sinners are welcome to come and find the rest that only Jesus can give. A place where people come and they see other sinners who have received mercy, who love the mercy they've received, and delight in giving mercy to others. Jonah's patriotism makes him prejudice. Not just, I think in a racial way here, but I think another way it applies to us is that typically our patriotism, uh, though certainly people can love the United States more than they love God, uh, that's certainly a temptation. But I think nowadays, in our current climate, our patriotism shows up in our politics more than anything else. That people identify themselves less as American and less as Christian, but most as a Democrat, most as a Republican. And then they demonize whoever thinks differently than them. I wonder, who do you think is unworthy of God's grace? Who's your Nineveh? Is it the Democrats? Is it the Republicans who are unworthy of mercy? The gospel says that that is foolish thinking. Friend, when you stop being surprised at your own salvation, you will start being self-righteous and stupid. You'll start thinking that somehow the gift of God that you've received is due to something in you. Well, of course God saved me. I'm a Democrat. You go to pat yourself on the back. And then demonize everybody else. See, he came for me, not those really bad people. You've misunderstood God's mercy. You've misunderstood grace. God is just. And God loves Democrats and Republicans. God loves Israelites and Ninevites. God loves Jonas and Gentiles. And thank God that he does Because I don't think any of us are Jewish. Maybe somebody is and I don't know it. But God's love is wide and deep and God is committed to saving a people to himself. God's mercy is offensive to Jonah. And Jonah quite literally is throwing a temper tantrum here. It's like a kid in the aisle of a grocery store. Like just all out on his back, screaming, kicking. And God is patient. He's so patient and so kind. I mean, instead of 
this is the picture I have. Instead of raising his voice and yelling at Jonah or just killing him like I might, thank goodness I'm not God, he responds calmly with a correction. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? When we bring our hottest anger, God always brings his coolest compassion. When we bring our very worst sins, he always comes with his very best grace. His grace always triumphs over our sins. I'm so glad that God is compassionate and patient with us because we are all so much like Jonah. Look at verse 4. He says, is it right for you to be angry? And then 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. Check this out. God asks Jonah a question. He's correcting him. He's having a conversation with him. And Jonah repeats the sin of chapter 1. He runs from God. And notice the direction he goes in. It's not insignificant. He goes to the east. East is a motif throughout the book of Genesis, if you remember. Adam and Eve, when they are banished from the garden, they go east of Eden. Cain, after he murders Abel, goes and he settles in the east. The people who want to build the Tower of Babel as a monument to humanity, well, they're headed towards the east when they decide to stop and do that. Lot goes to the east and settles in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're being told in Jonah here, as he literally goes to the east, something about his spiritual condition. He, like those in Genesis, and like himself earlier in the book, is once again going away from God. Throughout Jonah, Jonah's geography reflects his spiritual condition. He's on land, he hears from the Lord. And then he goes to the sea, a place of chaos and death. He gets spit back up onto the land, and he hears from the Lord. And now he's headed into the desert, another place of death. Which isn't insignificant. If you look at the second part of verse 5, Jonah made himself a shelter. What does that remind you of? A Jewish person in the wilderness making a shelter. And this is hearkening back to the Exodus where the Israelites wander through trial after trial and are taught to love God, to trust God. And what God does here in the life of Jonah is he makes him live a parable. Jonah makes himself a shelter and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. But what's going on here? Jonah preached, and it seems that the people repented rather quickly, right? We see uh, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished, and then verse 5 of chapter 3, then the people of Nineveh believed God, and then they started repenting, like immediately. And so I think what's going on here is Jonah's gone, okay, we're on day 10. The warning was for after 40 days. And so he's going, I bet that their repentance is just a flash in a pan and they'll stop repenting, and God will remove his mercy and crush them like they deserve. At least that's what Jonah's hoping for, right? He, what he's done is he's set himself up with some courtside seats to God's wrath, right? He's not, he's not out in the wilderness following a, 
um, cloud, but he is looking for a pillar of fire to fall on Nineveh. And so I kind of picture him there with his popcorn and his hot dog, just waiting to see God's wrath fall. But instead, God turns his shelter into a classroom. And in this classroom, he's going to teach Jonah all about mercy. In this uh, next few verses, you're going to see a plant, a worm, and a wind. And the plant is going to represent God's mercy. The worm is going to represent the removal of that mercy. And the wind will be God's judgment. Listen to it. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, It's better for me to die than to live. Three observations. Jonah cannot protect himself from the elements. He can't protect himself from God's judgment. And so God has to provide this plant to provide shade over Jonah and rescue him from his trouble. He can't protect himself. He needs God's mercy. And secondly, when God's, sorry, while God's mercy is there, he loves it. He loves God's mercy for himself. And thirdly, he can't stand the removal of God's mercy and the judgment of God. I mean, this east, is it an east wind? I'm sorry, I don't want to mess that up. Yeah, a scorching east wind uh, literally is a cutting wind. And what I think of is like when you're outside and sub-zero temperatures in the wintertime and that wind just is howling, and you get the wind burn on your face. You guys know what I'm talking about? It feels like needles in your skin. Like, I think that it's probably like that, but the inverse, just really hot, and just tearing him apart. What, what Jonah has just like a, a microcosm of what it is like to be outside of God's mercy. He has but a shadow, a snapshot of what the destruction of Nineveh would be. Just a small, faint whisper of what being separated from the mercy of God throughout all eternity would feel like. And he calls out to die. This is a, please kill me. I can't bear it. See, what God has done is he's given Jonah precisely what he wished for on behalf of Nineveh. Jonah wants to see God's mercy removed from the city so that God's judgment falls on it. And what God does is, as Jonah's sitting out in this shelter, God turns it into a classroom and says, let me teach you about how much you love mercy and about how terrible it is to have my mercy removed from you. And Jonah recognizes that this is hell. He wants God to make it end. The removal of God's mercy is unbearable. I mean, who, how could Jonah want this removal of mercy? How could he want God's judgment to fall 
on Nineveh. How could any of us want God's judgment to fall on anyone? It's terrible. I think the answer is we often want God's mercy to fall on people we consider more wicked than us. What we do is uh, we see our sins as small and the sins of others as really big. And the problem is the lack of a proper perspective. We go, God needs to punish what they did, but not, not what I did. My sin's not nearly that bad. What you must realize is that it is that bad Oftentimes, uh, people will describe, and rightly, sin as, uh, it's an old English archery term, and it meant to miss the mark, and so you'd have a, a bullseye, if you can picture one down the aisle there, and I would just pull my bow and arrow and aim at it, miss, arrow might curve and hit one of y'all, not great at archery, and somebody would have a sign that they held up, and it said, sin on it, and it just meant to miss the mark, or to miss that which was aimed for, and that's an okay definition of sin, but it doesn't quite get at the Bible's definition of sin. It doesn't quite get us there. Our sin, when we sin against God, it's a lot more than just simply missing the mark. It's as if Jesus were standing next to you as you were aiming at the target, and all of a sudden you dropped your bow and arrow and grabbed a dagger from your side and plunged it into his heart repeatedly because you want his authority as your own. That's what sin is. It's the de-godding of God. It's a murderous attempt to kill God and replace him with yourself. It's saying, I have the right to define me, not you, God. I'm going to follow my dreams and my heart, God, not your word. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do me, God, and you must get out of my way. That's what sin is. Betrayal, a treason. Once you understand that about each and every one of your little sins, you start to see them rightly. They're all big sins. You deserve to be hung for your treason against our good and mighty King. But what He does instead of giving you the gallows that you deserve is He comes and He hangs on the cross for you, in your place. The king dies the death of a criminal. Us criminals. So that we might live and enjoy life in his kingdom. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God forgives sin. When we repent of that sin, forgiveness isn't cheap costs. So glad that God gives us mercy and forgives us of our sin, all of which is very big. When we lose perspective on our sin, we stop being surprised at our salvation and we become self-righteous and stupid. Just as the man in Matthew's parable of the unforgiving slave. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter approached Jesus and asked, 
Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many times as seven? And Jesus said, only once. No, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have enough money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me. I will pay you everything. The master of the servant had compassion and released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me. I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? Because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Those who have received mercy love mercy and have mercy. If you do not have mercy on others, God will not have mercy on you. Well, what's that line in the Lord's Prayer that we pray kind of flippantly? Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Did you ever realize how dangerous a prayer that really is? Those who have received mercy have mercy. Receiving grace means giving grace. It means caring about other people. It means having a heart like God's wonder, who do you need to have mercy on? What Nineveh in your life do you need to forgive? God is teaching Jonah this lesson about those who receive mercy, loving mercy and having mercy. And so he hits him with those wonderfully rhetorical questions. Jonah answers one. Verse 9, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, replied Jonah. I'm angry enough to die. And so the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, 
which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left. That's just an idiom, idiom meaning uh, they don't have any moral clarity. They don't have the revelation of God to tell right from wrong. They can't distinguish their right from their left as well as many animals. Here's God's point. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. You care about this plant, which is of less value than cattle and of less value than people. You didn't create the plant. It was there for just the flash in the pan. But you loved it. Is it not right for me to care and love those people and those livestock in Nineveh that I've created? If you care about the plant, Jonah, it follows that you should care about Nineveh. And if you can't care about the Ninevites, at least care about the animals. God, here's the point, God loves the nations. God loves the nations. He loves Nineveh. And Jonah just can't get his head around that. He can't get his head around how the God of Israel would love and have mercy on those that are Israel's enemies. He just can't understand it. But God is committed to saving Nineveh. He's committed to bringing the nations to himself, even if Jonah is not. And God is still committed to bringing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself, even if you are not. Verse 11 in Jonah chapter 4 is kind of a great commission of the Old Testament. It is a declaration that God loves and cares for those who are outside of Israel. It's been his plan from the start. Remember in Genesis 12, he's going to bless all the nations through Abram. God loves the nations. And he's given us as his church a mission to make disciples of all nations. It's not optional to have a heart for the nations. It's not optional to have a heart for your neighbor. It is a command. You are to love the nations and love your neighbor. Every Christian is to be involved in God's mission of making disciples. I think there are four primary ways we are involved with this. And at various times in your life, you'll be involved with one or more of the areas. First is to pray. All of us should be involved in this one all the time. Praying for the salvation of those in our community. Praying for countries that we've never been to, with people we've never seen. One of the greatest helps for this is a book called Operation World. And on each page, there's a name of a country listed. Oftentimes a picture of someone that lives there. Brief description of the country. And then ways you can pray for that country. There's even an app now. Right? It's a little hard to find. You have to Google Operation World app and you'll get there. To help you pray for other countries. To pray that God would get his word to people who are dying and going into a Christless eternity. People who never had the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus Christ crucified for their sins and resurrected for their justification. Everyone is to pray. Second way is to send send, we give to missionaries so that they might go and live and minister somewhere. This is why we give to the Southern Baptist Convention in general. It's one of the reasons. And Lottie Moon in particular. 
Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you can offer to Lottie all year round. And all of that money, 100% of it, if you write in the four line of your check, if you write Lottie Moon, all of that money goes to foreign missions. It goes to support missionaries who are living on the field somewhere else in another country, sharing the gospel. We're to be people that are sending. Thirdly, you can go. Now, some of you are going, listen, Justin, retired a long time ago. But friend, God is not done with you yet. He may put it on your heart to have you go somewhere. Don't limit him. God has done wild things. And it might be to take you to a foreign country to live your last 10 or 20 years. Not that that's all you have left, some of you. I'm not commenting on age here. But go. I mean, there are, there, there are opportunities. If you don't want to go long-term, you can go short-term. You can go with Kim to, to Guatemala. Uh, Dan at the well takes a group to Honduras every year. There are even opportunities. If you don't want to go with anyone you know, you can get online on um, International Mission Board's website. They've created opportunities for you to go, to serve people that don't know Christ, to be a part of making disciples. The last way is to stay. It's to stay and I think that's probably going to be the majority of us. And what that means is that you are about making disciples in your life. You're not exempt from the mission of God to make disciples just because you live here in Nellie's Ford, Virginia, or in Waynesboro, or wherever it is you're from. You need to be about making disciples. Some great ideas about how to do this last week. That sounded really arrogant because these were my ideas, but some mediocre ideas about how to do this last week, right? You can invite someone to read through a book of the Bible with you. Maybe Mark, you can look up old sermons of mine or of somebody else that's going to preach the Bible faithfully and be working through them with other Christians and accomplishing, uh, just discipling one another, helping one another follow Jesus. And you can invite a non-Christian into that and accomplish the goal of getting them into the presence of God's Word so that God's word can do its work. All of us need to be involved in loving our neighbor and loving the nations. We want to be a church that is known for that. We, don't, we want to genuinely care about the people in our community. Yes, their, their spiritual needs are most important and, and we want to care about them. But we also want to, to just care about them. Does that make sense? To genuinely love them. I wonder, do you love the things that God loves? God has a heart for the nations, for the Ninevehs out there. Do you? Or are you more concerned with the plants in your life? Why is it that we are so often really, really passionate about all these things that don't matter? We have zero passion about those things which do matter. You obsessed with your stuff like Jonah was his plant? Or are you committed to the mission of the church? Making disciples, growing together into Christ likeness. The book of Jonah ends here with a question. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger, like one of a TV show you might watch at the end and you don't know how it ends, and it gets canceled before the next season, and so you never find out what happens to your favorite character. We're just left with a question. 
In the same way, we're left with a question at the end of the parable of the prodigal sons. The elder brother is outside of the feast and we're left to, to wonder. Does he go in and enjoy the feast and the mercy of God? Kind of a similar predicament. Does Jonah repent and begin to share God's heart for the nations? His wide and deep love and mercy. It's my contention that he does. Um, Namely because we have the book of Jonah and I think he wrote it. And I think most of the material is of a very personal um, element to it. We don't know for sure though. I think Jonah turned. Either way, the book is a mirror that shows us ourselves, that shows us how we have received great mercy and how we need to exercise giving mercy. It also compels us to look for a greater prophet whom we have in Christ. In Matthew 12, Uh, Jesus compares himself to Jonah when he says, No sign will be given this generation except for the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And he's pointing us to his resurrection. He will have a greater resurrection than Jonah. He tells the Pharisees that Nineveh will rise up in judgment against them because they didn't repent at his resurrection preaching. His preaching is better than Jonah's. And Jonah only preached five words and had a whole city repent, yet they continue to refuse. And he says, something greater than Jonah is here. Then we see all these contrasts with Jonah. Jonah ran from the presence of sinners, and Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jonah wanted to die to keep God's mercy from the unworthy. But Jesus died in order to extend God's mercy to the unworthy. Jonah was angry at God for showing mercy, and Jesus took God's anger so that he could show mercy. Jonah says in verse 3 of chapter 4, Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jesus says, take my life and live. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus says, take and eat. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Let's come together to the table this morning to remember Jesus once more who had his body broken for our sins, his blood poured out in a new covenant for us, and resurrected to guarantee us a life in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord's Supper is a reminder, it's an acting out of how we receive Christ. And in receiving Christ, we receive God's mercy. Reminds us that God is just, that He makes righteous those who will repent and follow Jesus. Amen.